Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast from the Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. Welcome back to An Examined Education. On today's episode, we get to speak with Melissa Gingrich, our upper school principal, on the teenage brain. We get to deep dive into all of the things that could encourage or discourage that, either from a teacher's perspective or from a parent's perspective, too. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. Melissa, I'm super glad that you're here with us today. And I thought you could just introduce yourself. We'd start off with that and let us know why you are the one to talk to us about the teenage brain. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is Melissa Gingrig. I'm the upper school principal. This is my fifth year in that role. I've actually been involved with Cambridge since 2006, and I started out as a grammar school science teacher, um, kind of moved my way up into upper school teaching biology, and now the senior neuroscience class, um, in addition to my role as principal. So um, it's been such a fun ride for me to be able to introduce students to the concepts of science um, from the youngest ages to the senior year. So um, yeah, and I also have a PhD in neuroscience, I guess, uh, that seems to have expired. I think I got that in 1999. <laughs> so I don't know when they expire. I think but, it lasts forever. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, um, I did study that for a while. So anyway, that's why I teach the class. And um, now that I'm principal, it is a huge interest of mine to really understand who teenagers are um, from a biological perspective and a social perspective, a spiritual perspective, all of the ways that we can understand our students better. So that makes me happy. That's great. And you've also had three of your own teenagers at <laughs> some true. point come through have, Cambridge. I've had really up close and personal education in who teenagers are through my two sons and one daughter. So yeah, two of my sons are graduates of the Cambridge school and my daughter's a junior right now. Nice. Yeah. So what are some of the key things that as we go first, but um dump into <laughs> the teenage brain, um, <laughs> you can laugh at that. That's good. Um, <laughs> I did a little. You did. I appreciate it. Thank you. As we dive head first into the teenage brain, tell us some key things that we should probably know ahead of time that, that will help us out and help the conversation. Right. So um, our brains are really complicated organs. I think it was Einstein who said that um, even more complicated than things he was studying in the universe, the human brain is something that's even more unfathomable. Um, and it's because it is just so complicated. But to understand it just at a basic level, you kind of need to know um, about brain cells. Um, so the brain cells are specialized um, cells called neurons. Um, the three main parts of the neurons are the cell body, the dendrites, and the axons. Um, dendrites receive signals from other neurons. Um, they carry that to the cell body, and then the axons send the signal to other neurons. Um, so when human babies are born, they have about 100 billion neurons in their brains. And that number is like really hard for us to even comprehend. But then adults have only about 86 billion. So what's going on with that? Hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. So you think you get smarter <laughs> as you get older, right. <laughs> but you're losing neurons. So what's happening to actually help you get smarter? Um, well, what's happening is that 
connections are happening and mm-hmm. connections are becoming more prominent than actually brain cells. Um, so there are up to 15,000 connections, um, which are also called synapses, onto the dendrites of any neuron in the mature brain. Um, and so the average neuron has about 7,000 connections to other neurons. So when we think wow. about that, even from a computer science perspective, we had our computer science um a teacher come into neuroscience class the other day and we were talking about just how complicated that is even in comparison to the best computers that we have right now. Um, and so um, as the brain matures, the stability of those connections become between neurons um, is actually dependent on their activity. So if mm. the brain uh, neuron is active and that connection is active, that connection is, is preserved. If it's not active, it gets pruned away. And actually, during critical periods of development in different parts of the brain, axons compete for stable connections onto other neurons. Um, So this development of stable pathways between neurons is essential for early development of brain structures and also for the learning process throughout um, the lifespan of the the person. Um, But the implications of this process is that if you don't use it, you will lose it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's why our repetitive chants and jingles in grammar school are so important. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because the more often an idea comes to mind isn't articulated, um, the more likely it is that it will be remembered. That's kind of the the background, these stable pathways all being connected from neuron to neuron. Did I get that any of that right? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay, good. <laughs> I knew there was going to be a quiz. How do things change and develop through adolescence? Because there's so many changes happening uh, there. What, does, what happens in the brain during that time? Right, yeah. So what about the teenage brain? Um, so by the time we're teenagers, most of the major highways in the brain are developed, Uh, But there's still so much going on as development continues through adolescence. More connections are being made within and across the areas of the brain, and those connections are strengthened through a process known as myelination. So if you've ever heard that fish oils make you smarter, Mm -hmm. uh uh-huh, yeah, it's referring (laughs) to adding nutrients to your diet that helps to form this fatty myelin layer that's added around the axons of neurons. Um, So this fatty layer is kind of like what you would see if you opened up a TV or a radio, um, and you see the plastic insulation that coats the wires inside those um, devices. So it's an insulation device, actually. And what it it does is it makes the signal go faster from one neuron to the other. And it also um, is involved in just connecting those neurons um, in the brain. So as we mature through adolescence, um, the number of neurons is reduced from that 100 billion to the 86 billion, but the brain space taken up by myelinated axons increases, um, meaning that the number of neurons goes down, but the number of connections between the remaining neurons and the speed of those connections increases. So Mm. it's really not about the number of neurons, it's about the connections between them and um, the, the stable connections between those neurons. So yeah, and also the development of different brain areas happens at different rates at different times. So the myelination of fiber tracts and um, the final maturation of the brain circuits um, happens earlier in the limbic system. So the limbic system, if you were to think about an ice cream cone with two scoops on it, Mm -hmm. you can think about um, the bottom scoop being the limbic system and then the top scoop 
is the cortex. The cortex is where all of our advanced processing takes place, and the limbic system is where we have a lot of our emotional reactions taking place. Hmm. Um, And so the limbic system has a role in the generation of strong emotions, and that's happening earlier. The development of that area of the brain is happening earlier in teenagers um, than the development of the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex, you might have heard, is um, the executive functioning part of the brain, and Mm -hmm. uh, the connections between that executive functioning part of the brain and the limbic system really helps to regulate emotions. So there's a mismatch in development between those two regions such that the maturation of the brain's emotive centers occurs before the prefrontal cortex's ability to fully regulate them. So the connections between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex and the final maturation of the prefrontal cortex doesn't happen until the average person is about 25 years old. Wow. So that's, yeah, actually all through adolescent development. What's difficult <laughs> about that? Yeah. And so I think what parents and what educators should know is that um, the, the emotive centers of the brain are going to be so much more influential in teenage behavior than the executive functioning parts of the brain. Um, I, I think that is going to help us to give to have more compassion for our kids, for our uh-huh. students, um, because, OK, we realize that this is an actual biological thing. It's not because you're trying to be hard to work with. It's because <laughs> right. you actually um, are, are going through this developmental stage. And it's so important for us to give uh, students and our kids um, the support that they need to be able to help them almost act as their prefrontal cortex before their prefrontal cortex develops. So how can we provide structures for them? How can we provide um, wisdom for them um, while their brain is still in this develop- developmental process? And so with the prefrontal cortex and we talked about like it not really uh, maturing or completely developing until 25. Like, w- what are some of the things that that prefrontal cortex does? Is it just like making the right decision? Is it self control? Is it what? Yes, like, that's like in my head, like what I think yes. it is. But what what specifically are the executive functioning? What does it do? I guess right. Okay, so I think that um, that's a great question. So um, for us as parents and educators, like we will often observe our teenagers. acting impulsively, right? And so Mm -hmm. um, they actually act before they think, you know, kind of from our viewpoint, because we do have those active prefrontal cortex Cs. Um, And so we can kind of see and plan ahead and see what the outcome is going to be of a a potentially risky behavior, whereas our teens may not actually see that outcome ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I mentioned I raised a couple sons. Um, (laughs) They would go do things. They're (laughs) awesome. (laughs) They will go they would go do things like uh, go to sunset cliffs and jump off the cliffs into the water. And are they checking to see if there are rocks below? I hope so. But maybe not. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And then they'll go like swimming in the La Jolla caves at night where uh, that just is terrifying to me to even think about it. So um, but there are advantages to that, too. Right. Right. Because um, if you're not willing to take risks, um, you're not going to explore as much as you could if you are. So. Mm. 
mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. definitely advantages to it. There's also dangers associated with it. Um, also, our teenagers, um, and this may happen with our girl, our girls, um, is that you can see just like an irrational emotional reaction to something where you're just like, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Right. Makes no sense to me. Um, but it makes total sense to them because they're wrapped up in the emotive center of their brain. They don't have the controls um, in place with the prefrontal cortex. And so I think understanding this about the, the teenage brain is really freeing for, mm-hmm. for parents and for teachers because um, we can we can be like, okay, they didn't mean to say that thing or do <laughs> right. that thing. They really are. It's just a stage of their development right now. How important is some type of cognitive stimulation in brain development for, for the kids and for adolescents as they grow up? Yeah. I mean, so we just talked about how these information highways are being really laid down and the brain architecture is growing all through childhood, but also through adolescence. And so hmm. what that means is that um, the the brain is really um, sensitive to new information during this time. Um, and so those highways are, mat- are rapidly maturing in adolescence, um, allowing connections to be faster and more stable as they're used. And so this suggests that adolescence is a great time to learn. Um, In fact, studies have shown that teens can learn faster and that memory lasts longer than learning as adults. Um, So cognitive tasks began early in the uh, teen years can last a lifetime, um, Mm. such as learning to play piano or speak a new language. I know I... um, I took French when I was in high school. I still remember mm-hmm. a good bit of that. Um, I can't speak it really, but I can actually recognize words. And it's because I, I laid down those pathways when my brain was still really malleable. Um, so the good news is that our brains are not fixed and we can influence our brain's architecture just simply by using our brains. And um, the more we more opportunities we give our teens to do that, the better um, without stressing them out, of course. Right. I mean, we don't want to give them too much. <laughs> but if they show an interest in something, it is a really good idea to give them an opportunity to develop those interests. That's great. Either nature versus nurture, that whole idea of you know what can be changed versus what's just hardwired in there. So that is a hot topic in neuroscience and biology in general. Um, so when we think about nature, we often are thinking about our DNA programming that mm-hmm. we each have. And basically what happens when um, a baby is made is that you have two people's genes kind of shuffled and put together um, and you have a whole new individual after that. Um, and that individual, um, Um, uh, A lot of people are thinking now is likely quite predetermined in terms of their abilities, in terms of their personality traits, their strengths and weaknesses, their social Mm -hmm. gifts, their intellectual aptitudes. All of it is really going to be determined um, by the mix of genes that they actually have um, and their programming. Um, However, we know that the environment the kids grow up in does matter, too. Um, Mm -hmm. Parents can provide a safe, nurturing environment to help their kids use their specific gifts and really learn how to acquire skills that might not come naturally. So if a child's not naturally 
super sociable, it could be the job of the parent to help them um, learn those skills that they might not have mm. um, naturally mm-hmm. um, in their DNA. But so it both are really important. Um, but I think the problem comes in when parents try to change the nature of a child by force. Mm. Um, I know that we've seen that, um, you know, in our work with teenagers, but. Um, if you're really interested in your teen having a specific career, for example, you may end up causing yourself a lot of frustration mm-hmm. um, and even do some psychological damage to your child and trying to force them into the outcome that you have in mind for them. Um, it's really better to try to understand who is your child, um, how has God made them, mm-hmm. what is the specific um, sort of um, strengths and weaknesses that they have, and how can they um, just be nurtured and grown into the um, Um, adult that God is calling them to be. What are some misconceptions people might have about the teenage brain uh, that you could dispel for our listeners? Um, Yeah. So I think a lot of what we see as adults as annoying or bad behavior in teens (laughs) um, can be really directly linked to their brain development. Um, First off, teens are naturally more risk-seeking than adults, um, and we talked about that a little bit. Um, So knowing that, I think it's good to put limits on kids, um, Mm -hmm. helping them to know what is safe and what isn't safe, um, and also to encourage some of their risk-taking behavior. Um, I know my kids, both of my boys, started investing um, right as all of the mar- markets were crashing over the past couple of years. Um, but I think it was a good risk-taking exercise for them because they could hmm. see immediately and they don't have much money. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have their their little meager savings from their, their summer jobs and such. But it's good for them to engage in that kind of thing when they're young and they can make um, mistakes and learn from them. So mm-hmm. I think that's really good. Um, but we have to just keep that in mind and just think about... You know, who are they and how are they developing and not necessarily um, really what the outcomes of their behavior are and just think about, uh, yeah, how are they growing through the process? Um, and also the emotional center um, having free reign in the brain without having those controls from the prefrontal cortex can really um, yeah, just make teens have certain behaviors that are not the favorite thing that pa- of parents to <laughs> to mm-hmm. deal with. And so like we actually have these kinds of situations at school sometimes where kids get into a disciplinary situation because they, you know, they were angry and they acted out or um, they uh, they did or said something that was out of line. Um, and we have to have those discipline co- conversations. But it's good for parents to know that, OK, this is within the range of typical teenage behavior mm-hmm. and not to overreact to those kinds of things, but instead treat them as learning opportunities. Um, so, and I, I think another thing that, uh, that parents get wrong about teens and their brains is just the importance of sleep. Um, <clears throat> so this is a, a drum that I continue to beat <laughs> constantly with my students and with the, the kids here at school as if, um, they're having an off day. I, I often ask them, how much sleep did you get? Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that when they get less sleep, they're less able to remember things, um, and engage with school, pay attention in class, um, engage with their peers. They're less emotionally stable. Um, it's so, so important for teenagers to get adequate sleep. And for teenagers, that means eight to 10 hours a night, um, which I doubt any of mm-hmm. our, our kids are actually getting. Um, 
it's just so important for being able to remember, being able to pay attention. I just, I can't overstate how important it is. Um, but one thing we get wrong with our teenagers too is just why they aren't sleeping so much. So um, for adults, what happens in the brain is we have these light sensitive cells in our retina that actually don't contribute to our vision, but go directly to a small center in our brain that controls our sleep and so and our circadian rhythms. So when the sun goes down and there's less light coming into our retinas, um, that is a signal to that, that part of the brain to then release melatonin. And it starts um, coming on about an hour after the we have that reduced light input to our retinas. Um, and so the melatonin um, is released from um, the hypothalamus and it then um, is going to be a signal to help us get sleepy at the right time. So for most adults, uh, that is about 10 o'clock at night. Hmm. Um, around that, I know I get sleepy before that, but, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but for our teenagers, what happens is that actually happens later. So, um, when the, the sun goes down, the melatonin doesn't actually start getting released until two hours after that. And so they're not going to get sleepy until about 11 o'clock at night, um, on Interesting. average. Yeah. So it really is a biological thing and it's not just our own species. It's not just humans. This has been studied in rats and in monkeys and all sorts of different animals. Um, and there is a very um, consistent result that um, the adolescent stage is a time when um, animals sleep later. Um, they get sleepy later. So, of course, if your teenager's not sleepy at 11 o'clock, I mean, or 10 o'clock at night, yeah. they're not going to want to go to bed. Right. They're going to want to do whatever it is that they're doing. Um, so, it's, it's hard because our whole society is structured so that teenagers have to be at school at a certain time. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud to say that Cambridge is a little bit ahead of the, the curve <laughs> on um, starting a little bit later at 8.30. So we're hoping that teenagers are getting a little bit more sleep. Um, but um, it's really not enough. Um, we really yeah. shouldn't be starting school until 9.30 or 10. Um, it doesn't really work for the adults in their lives and also for <laughs> sports schedules. So right. that's not going to happen. But I think just being sensitive to the fact that they really, really need sleep for emotional regulation, for learning, for everything, um, and trying to figure out how to get them as much sleep that they, as, they, as you can as a parent. It's really important. Hey, I love this conversation so far. Um, we're just going to take a quick break right now and hear from Jim Hamilton, our resident classicist. Welcome to the arena. I'm Jim Hamilton, language chair at the Cambridge School. And today we'll be talking about child brain development in the classical world. Once again, I'm going to draw from the wellspring of Quintilian. If it isn't clear now by my constant returning to him, I can't emphasize more that anyone who is part of the Cambridge community should acquaint themselves with Quintilian. A brief reminder for those unfamiliar, Quintilian was a mid first century scholar and teacher who founded Rome's first community school for young boys. Beforehand, private tutoring had been the norm. He laid out his educational philosophy and the wisdom gained from his teaching experience in the Institutio Oratoria, which remains today a seminal work for classical education. I doubt that there is any work from the classical world that is more thorough in its observation of child brain development. Quintilian was an earnest educator who took particular interest in imparting good virtues to his students. In doing so, it's obvious from his extensive work that he took pains to know the idiosyncrasies of all his charges and showed that he had a heart for working with children. 
most clearly displayed in his comprehensive observations of how young people's minds worked. This following quote from the first book of the Institutio reveals just how thoroughly he examined a child's capacity to learn. We need have no fear at any rate, that boys will find their work too exhausting. There is no age more capable of enduring fatigue. The fact may be surprising, but it can be proved by experiment. For the mind is all the easier to teach before it is set. This may be clearly proved by the fact that within two years after a child has begun to form words correctly, he can speak practically all without any pressure from outside. On the other hand, how many years it takes for our newly imported slaves to become familiar with the Latin language? Try to teach an adult to read, and you will soon appreciate the force of the saying applied to those who do everything connected with their art with the utmost skill. He started young. Moreover, boys stand the strain of work better than you gentlemen, just as small children suffer less damage from their frequent falls, from their crawling on hands and knees, and, a little later, from their incessant play and their running about from morn till eve, because they are so light in weight and have so little to carry. Even so, their minds are less susceptible of fatigue, because their activity calls for less effort, and application to study demands no exertion of their own, since they are merely so much plastic material to be molded by the teacher. And further owing to the general pliability of childhood, they follow their instruction with greater simplicity and without attempting to measure their own progress. For, as yet, they do not even appreciate the nature of their work. Finally, as I have often noticed, the senses are less affected by mere hard work than they are by hard thinking. Minus this being exclusionary to girls and the mention of the Roman practice of taking POWs as slaves, Quintilian sounds, as always, as if he were writing today. Though just a mere snippet of his greater work, it is evident how well Quintilian grasped the anthropology of children. While modern science has assuredly deepened our understanding of the malleability of the young brain and proven such assertions as these, it's still amazing to see how Quintilian's insights were so spot on even 2,000 years ago. His timeless wisdom should remind us of the enduring importance of classical sources. By returning to such a fundamental text as Quintilian's Institutio Oratoria, as well as augmenting it with the support from modern sciences, we can increase and expand our understanding of such important topics as the fostering of children's minds. This is The Arena. I'm Jim Hamilton. Until next time. So as we're talking here, I'm thinking about how it may be, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it may be that habits are more easily formed through grammar school and then through the adolescent brain. Um, and and those habits, whatever they may be, whether it's learning particular things um, through chants and jingles like we talked about earlier, or... Um, whether it's virtues, like we're, mm-hmm. as we're trying to mm-hmm. uh, train and habituate virtues, that, which leads to wisdom, is, is that something that's easier to do in the grammar school and, mm-hmm. and adolescent brain than something to do when you're older, right? Like, is it an advantage here at the Cambridge School as we're trying to develop those things early than like, oh, I'll, I'll just get information <laughs> now and I'll figure out how to be a good person later? <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a good point. And I think 
Um, I can probably answer that question better as an educator than a neuroscientist. I'm not quite sure of any studies that would help with that from a neuroscience perspective. But um, as somebody who's been working here for a while, and we've just recently um, been more explicit with our virtue education in upper school over the past couple of years, um, I've definitely seen that um, the power of the community that we have here, um, when there's discussion, when there's um, definitions for virtues, that people are having conversations about how those virtues can be applied. Um, And then they're actually seeing that lived out around them in their teachers um, in hopefully with their parents at home. Um, I think that this is just such a critical stage for every kind of development, not just intellectual development. And so I think that is something that we definitely promote here at Cambridge is that we are we are developing the whole person. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, we're doing that in tandem with parents and with the values that we share. Um, And so I have seen that over the past couple of years really lived out in in more explicit ways in upper school and and kids really caring about it right mm-hmm. like I don't think there are a lot of teenagers out there who talk about virtues or care right <laughs> um, and we have some <laughs> students here who actually really do um, strive to develop um, into virtuous people and um, that is only going to just show up later in life in, in really positive ways I think mm-hmm. yeah as we talk about things that impact brain development do negative emotions or positive emotions are, are they processed differently in the brain um you know I, or i'm thinking about like is there a better way to train a child whether that's through positive or negative emotional <laughs> responses does that make sense yeah um yeah that makes a lot of sense so I think it's not surprising that negative emotions can have really negative effects on learning and social development. Um, So what happens in the brain is that when there are high levels of activation of the amygdala, which is one of the structures in the limbic system we were talking about earlier, um, that is known um, to really uh, trigger fear conditioning, right? Mm. So if you're constantly in this stage of like fight or flight or freeze um, as a psychological response, then what that does is what people refer to as downshifting the rest of the brain. Mm. So your brain and your limbic system is occupied with fear um, and um, trying to avoid danger. Um, so that what that does is it, it really downshifts what the rest of the brain can do. So the cognitive um, aspects of the of the cortex really can't function optimally. And so what happens in classrooms and in homes is that if a student or a child feels threatened, um, they're not going to be able to function to their best of their ability. Um, so hmm. what we try to do at Cambridge is really try to make our classrooms feel really safe for kids, that they're not going to be criticized in the classroom. They don't need to be afraid of a pop quiz here or there. We don't do that very much around here. Um, So we're trying to just keep them out of that danger avoidance um, sort of stage of their brain. so, uh, yeah, when students are stressed, um, they're in their worst possible state for learning. Um, same thing at home, too. If your kids are stressed and they're worried about your expectations or your um, your fears and worries for them, um, they're not going to interact as well and not they're not going to be as receptive to um, the, the learning that can happen at home, too. 
But um, fortunately, the opposite is also true. So positive emotional <laughs> states um, are correlated with enhanced learning. Um, so as the limbic system is more dominant in teens and all emotional states can be enhanced in teens, um, engaging positive emotions um, and imagination has positive effects on adolescent learning. Um, studies have shown that the integration of the arts and non-art subjects into, yeah, so like if you integrate art into a science class, um, that can stimulate creativity and um, learning, at least partly because of the engagement of emotion and imagination in the classroom. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, those are things that we try to do around here. We try to have fun in the classroom. We like, mm -hmm. we want to have a lighthearted, enjoyable um, classroom environment for our students so that um, they're going to be in the right sort of state um, to be able to learn. We talked a little bit about, you know, negative, I guess, emotions um, and it hindering some of the or downshifting other parts of the, the brain. What about social media and technology? Does it also do some of that? <laughs> or what are the what are the effects that you, you've seen uh, of social media and technology kind of happening to the brain? I mean, I feel it in myself, right? As I right. go through meme after meme and reel after reel, <laughs> I, I am not immune to that. Right. I know. <laughs> and that is so important because because teens are such at a, an important critical stage of development, um, they can be really susceptible to the dangers of social media. So, um, we know that social media is hugely damaging, especially to girls in the middle school years. So mm. 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, so the temptation to compare oneself unfavorably to your classmates or to your friends um, is really heightened in teens. Um, and they often have really um, sort of distorted views of themselves already. Um, and then you introduce um, social media, which is just a massive comparison trap. Um, mm. And so now you're not actually comparing yourself just to the, you know, 12 other kids in your class on any given day, but you're also comparing yourself to the most attractive people on the internet ever, um, and hundreds of them. So um, it's been shown to be really, really damaging to kids, um, especially girls in those vulnerable years. So um, I think uh, the more that people think about these things, the more uh, people realize that we just have to be so much more careful mm -hmm. with social media and our kids than we are right now. And it's not just girls either mm -hmm. that are, are are in that comparison trap. There's boys as well. Um, and so it just makes it all the more important for parents to be aware of the danger and really don't give your kid a phone until you absolutely have to. And I don't know mm -hmm. exactly when that actual age is. I know in our family, we've um, waited until the, the kids are 15 at least mm -hmm. to give them phones. Um, but my best friend has a phone. <laughs> yeah, but you're the parent. You I'm the last decide. one in my class to have a phone. I know. And there are things like flip phones that are better. That's right. And like you can still text. And so, there are actually, I, I do have to acknowledge that kids um, do get left out when they don't have phones. And so it's really important for parents to limit um, the use of phones yeah. to know that and to provide them with some sort of way to be able mm -hmm. to be in touch with their friends because they do text each other. And I think especially at age 15, that's when 
that's really going to be happening more and more. Um, so, so if you don't have a way for your kid to text, um, that could be a social hindrance for them. So I think we have to acknowledge that. And, yeah. and some of the complaints that the teens make are real. Yeah. Um, and the society that we're living in, I think, um, someone had said at a parent coffee a, a while back that it would be nice if parents in certain classes, especially in, in grammar school, maybe fourth, fifth grade could get together and make a pact and say, we're not going to get our kids phones until age 15. I think that would make a huge difference, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in terms of, um, kids and their mental health. Um, so I think that's number one. I mean, this is, Social media is linked to depression and suicide in, in girls as, as um, cell phone use has increased. And so it's just a very, very serious thing. Um, I'm also, though, worried about phones and um, what they do to a kid's attention span and, right. and my own attention. Honestly. Yeah, right. I feel it. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's changed my brain for sure. And, and, and for kids in this critical stage of development, it's going to be even probably longer lasting for them. Um, I think it's really important for us as parents to model not being on our phone constantly. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen teenagers, even our students, um, I just came back from the Italy trip with the seniors and there were moments on the trip where we had to stand in line or we were on a bus or we were doing things. And so eventually, um, like instantaneously, some of the students would just pull their phones out if there was any kind of downtime whatsoever. Um, and it almost felt like they were afraid to be alone with their own thoughts or afraid mm. to mm -hmm. have to like talk to the person next to them. Um, and I think that we just have to let them feel a little uncomfortable sometimes right. and not not grab that phone for that Im immediate relief of whatever they're feeling. Um, and uh, that just is hugely distracting and 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 really detracts from their experience of life. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's important for us though because I I'm guilty of that too. If I'm standing in line at the grocery store, <laughs> yeah. the first thing I do is pull out my phone <laughs> um, and try to get distracted. And so it's it's something that we have to model for our kids too. Right. What are some of the other things that parents and grandparents or whoever can do to kind of create that? great environment for a healthy brain development in our teenagers. So I think it really does go back to that emotional state of what the brain, the, the emotional state the brain is in as it's developing um, in teenagers and kids. Um, I just see again and again as principal here, just the effects that just a uh, small encouragement um, can do for a kid in terms mm -hmm. of who they are, their identity in Christ, um, understanding, affirming, supporting um, each teenager's strengths and weaknesses, um, and just saying, like, I'm here for you, mm -hmm. and I, I love you just the way you are. Um, you've got to convince your your teenager that you love them just mm -hmm. the way they are, and you want to support them through the ups and the downs, um, and being able to, to support and talk about all the feelings, um, not just the happy ones. I think avoiding expectations of who we want our kids to be, finding our own identities in um, who our kids are is mm -hmm. like the worst thing we can do to our kids yeah. is to help is to force them to um, help us feel better about ourselves. That can be really damaging to kids. Um, those expectations can really crush them and really stifle their development. Um, and I think helping your teen to minimize feelings of fear um, and talk about those things, because a lot of times it really just takes a conversation with a kid to help them realize that they don't have to be afraid of a particular circumstance. 
um, so that they can just engage those higher order parts of their brain um, more often. And then I think lastly, just providing them with stimulating conversation and experiences that encourages them to think in new and different ways. So forming Mm -hmm. new connections, like um, getting out of particular ruts of thought um, or habits and and actually just experiencing the world, experiencing new ideas. So I think all of that can be really beneficial. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for uh, coming on, talking all about the teenage brain. It definitely has given me lots to think about and how to be a better dad to my teenagers as well. So thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to An Examined Education. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, reach out to the Advancement Office. Check out our website and schedule a tour at cambridgeclassical.org. Until next time, think well, love rightly, and live wisely.